Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Good morning, North Sound Church. Good to be here. And those watching us online, a warm welcome. Thank you for for being there. Um, Pastor Barry, if you're watching, the church is doing well. As we all know, we are in this series called Paul's Letter to the American Church. And we've been doing chapters on 1 Thessalonians. Um, It has five chapters, and we are today on chapter 4, the last part. And I've been given this text, which is chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. I can safely say that this passage is the most widely spoken on and preached passage. Because every day, chances are in America and the rest of the world, that some preacher, some pastor would be preaching from this passage to a bereaved family or at a funeral service. So, (laughs) anyways, uh, while the subject is sobering and solemn, Paul's emphasis is the encouragement and the hope that we have in that passage. While the subject is about uh, people who have died, it is addressed to the people who are living. So I believe there's profound truths in this passage that can uh, help us navigate turbulent, unexpected tragedies and the fear of the unknown. Uh, Paul gives us some wonderful insights in this passage. It is my belief that before we read a text, for a greater and deeper understanding of the text, it's always good to uh, know the topographical, historical, the immediate context of that passage, who wrote it, and why they wrote it, and what was the immediate context preceding the writing. So with that, let me take you back to Thessalonica, AD 50. (laughs) Well, before that, let's let's see some amazing pictures from Thessalonica, Greece. This is modern-day Thessalonica, so next. Beautiful. Um, Next. This is 2,000 years old, but still that's commendable. We can think about 2,000 years ago, people did that, lived that, they traded, they commerce, they did commerce, and they did, they did theater. <laughs> uh, okay, great. Uh, next. All right, so as, we are, as it's there, Thessalonica is the capital, was the capital of uh, this province called Macedonia, founded in BC 315 by this general called Cassander. And um, he names the city after his wife, Thessalonikai. I wish we could do that. (laughs) But, (laughs) well, that's how Thessalonica got its name. And um, uh, this unique, there's an interesting thing about the cities that are on this port or on the coastal areas, right? Um, the, The amazing topography gives them amazing benefits. For example, look at Thessalonica. It is right at the Gulf of Teramic, well, over there in the Teramic Gulf, and it has this, it's a port, so people come, people go, ships and voyages and cargo and everything, and also it is a hub. You can see this Roman highway going all the way from east by Byzantium all the way to Rome, and then it also has this, that is from east to west, and, the, and it also has a north-south highway going all the way from southern Germany, Danube, down to Athens. Sorry, that's my drawing over the map. So 
Thessalonica is at that juncture, major roadways, major port, people coming, people going, and it gives that city that vibrancy, right? Next picture. Next. Well, that's another port city, and it's my hometown. And uh, the one on the, that end is where my college was situated. It's St. Xavier's College. And uh, in the breaks, if I have time, I would come and be on that sea face. It's an amazing view. Uh, and on, the, on this end is, I don't know if it's visible, one of the high rises on the extreme corner was the hospital where I worked. And again, uh, on the 14th floor, you can see that amazing view. And well, that would do a lot of healing. <laughs> and intentionally, hospitals would build that where at least the patients would give, get that view. Um, again, that's, it's a major port, major hub for highways. People come, people go. And next, yeah, that's our. <laughs> Edmonds in Seattle. Again, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So what we see is like these coastal areas tend to become home for millions of people who come, maybe for trade, for study, for work, for whatever reason. They become this beautiful, vibrant, cosmopolitan, glittering coastlines, high-rises, monuments, esteemed centers of learning, and all of that. Millions live here. But as the sun goes down, despite all this rosy picture, we also know that as the sun goes down, uh, underworld opens, it seems like. And even in my own city where I lived, uh, despite all that we see, the glitter and the glamour, it is a place where um, there would be violent crimes, smuggling, trafficking, prostitution, child trafficking, um, cartels. Um, uh, while the rich, um, so, well, that's often hidden, that's on the uh, underside of things. But people flock, nevertheless, to make a living, right? The rich come there to get more richer. The poor comes there to get a little richer. <laughs> the politically ambitious comes to the such metropolitans to get their, what they desire. So what we see is there's a steady pursuit for power, pleasure, prosperity, popularity, um, and a person lives out his, a bulk of his existence chasing down, pursuing down these goals. Uh, and then suddenly something happens and uh, life is no more. <clears throat> let's go back to, so let's go back to Thessalonica now. <laughs> so to such a city, and Thessalonica was no different like Mumbai or like uh, Seattle. It was a very cosmopolitan city uh, with, uh, with uh, temples all around, with uh, markets and businesses and, and, and everything. It, in, in all respects, it was very much like a modern cosmopolitan city. And millions lived, uh, thousands lived, and thousands came to make it big in, the society, in, in those communities. And to this city came Paul and Timothy and Silas. Let's go to the next map. We know from previous uh, sermons, from Pastor Robin took us through that chapter, how that Paul was in Troas, and suddenly he gets a vision, a man from Macedonia saying, come to us. And he thinks it's a divine vision, and he goes there. But what happens in Philippi? They're literally chased out like criminals. Then he comes to Thessalonica, this city that we are talking about, and he finds a group of uh, amazing Jewish community. 
And he decides, okay, let me talk to them. Let me share the gospel with them. Let me tell them Jesus is the Messiah that they have been waiting for all this time. And he shares the gospel with them. Few Jewish people come to faith. Many Greeks, pagan Greeks or Greeks who were seeking the truth, they come to faith. Even prominent rich women from the community. And we're talking about 80-50, prominent rich women. We're talking... <laughs> so... It's, so that gives an idea about what the city was. It was a very cosmopolitan city. And they, they, uh, so we have this, um, <clears throat> the, so few Jewish people, a lot of Greek converts, and some women joined this community. And um, well, we just, well, Paul was just thinking, and it's been three weeks that Paul has been preaching to this congregation. And when these people start, when the, and when the community starts growing, there arises a big persecution. The Jewish people start harassing. They feel Paul is taking away from their community and making them uh, and deceiving them into forming a heretical sect, which is not Judaism. The, 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 and when many Greek converts started going, joining this movement, it took the notice of this local population and the civic authorities. Oh, what is this group doing? And, um, and why are people joining this movement? And uh, there, was, there arose a severe opposition. Act 17 gives us more details about it. They were so opposed, they, they were so angry, and those, they were so vehemently opposed to this new movement that they gathered up all the bad characters in the city and decided to literally uh, do a lynching, maybe you can say, a mob lynching of Paul and his associates. And they, so to do that, you've got to come up with some very serious allegations. Next slide. So what are the allegations against Paul? He just brought the gospel to the city. First, seditious, seditious conspiracy and insurrection. Allegation against Paul. Second, financial impropriety. Third, sexual impropriety. I have a question mark because I, I need some more research to be done on that. These were the allegations against Paul, Timothy, and Silas. Why sedition? Because they were preaching about Jesus a king over Caesar. Why financial impropriety? Well, there, there are already many quacks. I mean, I think it's, it was more of a psychological projection, I guess. Um, these people are introducing new philosophies, new religious ideas, trying to deceive people and make money off them. Why sexual impropriety? There is evidence at, at, later on as the church proceed, uh, in the later ages, in the later centuries, any time the Roman, the Roman region, uh, the, the pagans wanted to make a scapegoat of the church, they would put up this allegation. Oh, these Christians, they are, very, they are a very secretive community. They meet after sundown. They have this small gathering. And there they drink blood and eat flesh. I hope you get the idea what they're talking about. They misconstrue the communion. And they exchange holy kisses with brothers and sisters. And there goes the charge of incest and, <laughs> and orgies. Well, the whole idea was to demonize, slander, and discredit the messengers of the gospel. Hence, the very mess if, the, if the messengers are corrupted, so is the message. The target was the gospel. And so is everyone guilty by association, whoever came and joined Paul's movement. So we read in Acts 17, they literally dragged out Jason and few other believers and brought them to the magistrates, and all these allegations against them. 
They could not be proved, so I think that's why they, they posted bail and got out. But nevertheless, a church just three weeks old had to endure this kind of persecution. And Paul literally had almost went, uh, what do you call them? Uh, uh, under the radar, he had to be in hiding. Otherwise, he would have been just um, killed alive, possibly. And somehow, they take him. Can we have the next slide? Yeah, so we know what the treatment Paul and his disciples uh, and his associates got in Philippi. Even worse happened with them in Thessalonica. And then they go to Berea to save their lives. And these troublemakers come from Thessalonica to Berea with the same agenda, and they have to run again. This time, Timothy goes one way, Silas goes the other way, and Paul is escorted by believers to Athens. It's, almost, it's a different province altogether, a different state. Imagine running like a criminal, like an exile, with this wanted, fraud, sex offender, devious insurrectionist. More than that, Paul is... Paul could not consider those allegations. He was worried. If this is happening to me, what is happening to my little church in Thessalonica? What are they going through? Will they be able to withstand this onslaught, this ordeal? Will they hold on to the faith? Or will they compromise? Will they buckle under pressure? We know the pressure. If law enforcement, if the political machinery of a city decides to hunt somebody down, they can. It can be financial, verbal, physical, emotional, violent. We don't know. Paul has no idea. These are the days of no phones, no internet, nothing. Somehow, Timothy reaches Athens. At least Paul is relieved. At least one man alive. <laughs> okay. Well, and he says, Timothy, why don't you go to Thessalonica? I'm worried about my church. I don't know what's happening over there. Why don't you go there and check it out and let me know? And there goes Timothy back to Thessalonica. And then Paul comes to Corinth. So Paul came to Thessalonica early spring, AD 50. <laughs> and by the time he reached Corinth, it's almost fall, AD 50. It's been four months of running. And again, he has no idea what is happening. Timothy has not yet returned. And every passing day he feels, they must have caught him. They might have killed him. Here, Timothy, Paul waits eagerly like a parent awaiting to see or hear from a child. If you notice Paul's letters, they're always parental. They're very passionate. They're very personal. Paul deeply cares for all of his churches. I still remember once my little son John got lost in the mall. He ducked himself beneath the clothing, and I could not find him. For this horrific two minutes, it was like I could feel my heart pounding. But the moment I saw him, I was like, wow. The relief is unexplainable, I would say. Guess what happens? Timothy returns, and Paul is relieved. Next slide. He's relieved that Timothy made it back alive to him in Corinth. But he's even more relieved when, he's, when Timothy brings a report that the Thessalonian church is doing well. This baby church, just three weeks old, is not only living in Christ, is living in Christ and is living for Christ. That was Paul's, uh, Timothy's report to Paul. We have read, we have 13 letters of Paul 
addressed to different churches. I have never seen any letter where Paul has given such glowing recommendation or praise for a church. We have heard he can get really nasty with his language. But look at the way he deals with uh, he deals with this church, with this baby church. You receive the gospel as if words not spoken by men, but by God himself. You became imitators of the Lord and we apostles. You became model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And you have stood firm in your faith in the midst of severe, unwarranted persecution. What this was Paul. So, so, so when Timothy comes back and he hears this report from Timothy, Paul begins to write his first letter to the Thessalonians. So now when you go back and read Thessalonians chapter 1, he begins with thanksgiving. He begins with thanking God and praising God for keeping this church alive. I hope you understood why I take the trouble to go to the context, because Paul's heart was in his hand, mouth, hand or mouth. I don't know how the metaphor runs, but uh, till he heard from Timothy that the church is doing well, they made it out, they hanged this, standing strong. The question is how the church in America is. Well, to that later. So what did the, what did the Thessalonian church do? They welcomed, they received the message by faith. The Holy Spirit brought such a deep and radical transformation that they turned from their religious, cultural idols and they turned to serve the true and the living God. They abandoned the pursuit of unrestrained sexual fulfillment to the pursuit of meaningful love, committed marriages, responsible parenting, and relationship. I hope you get it because Pastor Barry showed us how the climate was sexually, how women and children were object of, were treated as commodities. They abandoned the path of deceit and manipulation to that of integrity and righteousness to earn a decent living and to be content with it. They loved and cared for the needs of the brothers within the community and their neighbors and their co-workers who were slandering them despite all that. They cared for them. And they held on to the purity and the unity of faith in the body of Christ in the midst of unwarranted slander and persecution. No wonder Paul commends the church. So when Paul brought this wonderful report back um, uh, that the church is doing well, he told, but, but I'm, I'm envisioning this, this way. Uh, Paul, Timothy must have told Paul, Paul, but the church has having some confusion regarding some issues towards, that deals with the end of uh, the ages. It's possibly because they were, they, Paul was there for three weeks. He was instructing them what the Christian faith is all about. And the way things turned around, that they had to run for their lives in the middle of the night. Chances are they didn't get, Paul could not get to address these topics. Uh, that pertain to the end. Timothy brings to Paul, says to Paul, that there are some questions that the church in Thessalonica has. And with that, I would like to go to my sermon. (laughs) 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 That was the introduction. (laughs) So, what are the questions that the Thessalonian church had for Paul? What is the fate of believers who died? I don't know during the during the turbulent two three months time period if the violence was if the persecution was violent that some died in the midst of that we have no evidence so I'll, it will be just speculation. What is the fate of those believers who died? Because 
uh, they were thinking Jesus would come and um, they could not comprehend what is happening. The second was, when will Jesus come? There's, there are two terms, parousia and second advent, which means the same. So uh, that was the second question. When will Jesus come? Will, the, will those who died before Jesus came, will they miss out? When, the, when will the day of the Lord be? When's, what's the final judgment? Imagine a baby, an infant church in the midst of such persecution. They are not care, worried about their comfort or their, their, what, what are they going to wear or their prosperity or anything. The, the, the questions that burned within the heart of the Thessalonian church were these. Half of the church in America, and not just America, I would say in the world, we have got a focus so differently. How many of us do you think would be pondering on these questions? Seldom, seldom. Next. Uh, <clears throat> All right, so, and then here begins my text, verse 13, Paul says, addressing those questions about those who died, what happened to them, when would Jesus come, and, and, and the nuances with that, and, and all of that, Paul says, he, he encourages the church, I don't want the church Paul says he doesn't want the church in Thessalonica and America to be uninformed or ignorant about the nature and reality of death for a believer in Christ. We are talking about believers here. Paul writes to the church, I don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed about the nature and the reality of death. Death is a universal experience. It comes to everybody. There's a certain unexpectedness about it. There's an inevitability about it. But he says that there has to be confidence and there has to be a freedom for a believer from fear or a denial about this thing called death. Third, the beauty and brevity of life demands due diligence as the choices we make in the short span of life has eternal consequences. Next. We, as I mentioned, when Paul began to minister to the church, some Jews came, but a lot of Greek and pagan people from the pagan background came. And they had a different worldview about death. And Paul uses the euphemism as for, sleep, for death, uh, uses the euphemism sleep for death. And he addresses this worldview. And he knows that many of the new converts would be struggling with what they have learned and grown up with, and what the Christian, the Judeo-Christian view about death would be. For a pagan view, death is a sleep from which there is no awakening, a night that never ends, and that is, which that is permanent. I'm sure there's no hope, right, in that view, in that worldview. Second, the Judeo-Christian worldview, in the Judeo-Christian worldview, death is a mere sleep, a temporary interruption in the continuum of life, a transitioning to a different realm, but never a termination of life for those in Christ. Paul wanted to encourage the church. Uh, in Thessalonica, that, and to us here today, that this is the worldview. Death is not, in the Christian worldview, death is not the end. It is a mere transition to, the, to a better place. <clears throat> so he says, therefore Paul writes to this church, I don't want you to grieve like pagans when somebody dies as if there's no hope. If you have not lived like pagans, serving idols, if you have not lived like pagans, fulfill, uh, in, in sexual 
per pursuit of sex and immorality or pursuit of power and wealth, if you have not lived like them, then I don't want you to grieve like them, as if there is no hope. Next. Can we, no, no, can I go to the previous slide? Previous slide? The question would be, can I grieve and can we grieve in hope? Can the church grieve in hope? Grief is a function of love. Do we grieve for anything we don't like or love? No. We always grieve. We feel a sense of loss or void, only for things that we love, that we cherish. So grief is a, is a function of love. Grief is both natural and is both normal, and it's also necessary. The, um, no matter, no matter how strong you are in your faith or how many degrees you have in your theological studies, when an event happens where your loved one is lost, the, the pain is profound, the, the pain is shocking, and we have to deal with it. The father knows what grief is, right? When he saw the son hanging on the cross, but he knew in three days' time there was hope in that grief, that he would rise again, and with him, redeem all of mankind. Jesus knew what grief was when he saw Lazarus in the grave, despite knowing that by the command of his word, the grave will not hold him back. That was. So the God we serve is familiar with grief and death and the power of hope in the midst of all that. So, we'd, so we don't dis grieve in despair, rather we grieve in hope. Some may say, next, the hope that we have in grief for a believer is not wishful thinking. It's not unsubstantiated optimism about the future. The hope in grief that we have is not based on some esoteric knowledge that some guru gave me. Or it, is not, it is not deduced because of some philosophical argumentation. Neither it's a scientific breakthrough or scientific innovation. The hope that a Christian has in grief towards a glorious future is grounded in what God has already done in history in Jesus Christ. What does Paul say as he goes to verse 14? We believe Christ lived, he died, and he rose again. Therefore, he that dies in Christ shall rise again with him. Our hope in the midst of grief is based on a historical reality. The future optimism that we have is based on historical truth and reality and not wishful thinking. I've been in autopsies. I've done some, assisted some. I've signed quite some death certificates for my brief time as a medical doctor. For a minute, and as much as I can, I sympathize, and, I, and, I, and I'm in the pain, and if there was any medicine more I could give to bring back that life, I would have done. But when a person dies without Christ, I just have nothing to offer. I have nothing. That has been my experience. Next. So how do we grieve in hope? How do we grieve in hope? We can grieve in hope when we commit to hold and cherish the memory of a loved one who just left us. It's a commitment we make not to forget them. 
and not just stop there. Next step also. It's a commitment we make that we will move on with these memories to complete the course that God has set for us. Many don't go to the second step. They get so overwhelmed with grief and a sense of loss and despair that they suicide, mental health, substance abuse, the list is endless. That is not to be our lot. We have to make these commitments. And as we walk and approach and walk and navigate life with these with this hopes, with these memories and with these truths, we will approach that great day, the glorious day, when the memory will become the reality, when the legacy will become life, when the grief will be turned to joy, and when the mourning will be turned into celebration. The resurrected dead and the raptured living will be gathered together to be with the Lord. We, we often, we are so excited about the first advent, right? We deck the place, we do concerts, we decorate the house, there's songs, there's gifts, and we are so, we are so nostalgic about it, rightly so. But we don't, we don't even show half the interest or half the excitement towards the second advent. For many, it's blurry, it's enigmatic, it's scary, they don't want to talk about it. It not ought to be that way. For a Christian, no. The first advent set in motion the world to embrace the second advent. The second advent, the parousia, the coming of Jesus, is the absolute consummation of the first advent. But, but, we need more concerts looking forward. <laughs> Next. It is, oh yeah, this is, next. As I told you, how do we grieve in hope? We make those two commitments and we continue walking. And Paul warns that as we walk, we constantly keep our eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith, on the life and the resurrection of his Jesus. And if you look at this chapter of 1 Thessalonians, the book of 1 Thessalonians, every chapter, as Paul concluded the chapter, the last verse of the chapter, or the last second last, was about the second coming of Jesus. Hence, be encouraged. Hence, when the Lord shall return with his holy saints. Paul knew what the church needed. And with every closing verse for that chapter, he mentioned, we would be with the Lord. The Lord shall come with his holy ones, and we shall be together. Uh, I, I wanted to go through the words, but to the brevity of time, if you can just note down, that will be there. <clears throat> Next. Uh, a, a hypothetical scenario. If I were to propose to you that the Lord Jesus would be coming to North Sound Church next Sunday, 9 a.m. Maybe the Lord told me, and I'm just proposing it to you. What would be our reaction? The Lord Jesus is coming to North Sound Church at 9 a.m. next Sunday. For the feverish urgency with which we will try to clean up our lives, tie the loose ends, make the amends, in our relations, in our social life, in our financial life, in our moral life, 
and the judicious use of time, resource, and energy for the next seven days would be a feat to watch. <laughs> As we try to make ourselves presentable and commendable to the Lord. Or vice versa. What if the Lord were to tell you, next Sunday 9 a.m., you'll be coming home? It's more sobering. But it should, the reaction would not be very different. So I believe that um, whether it's the coming of the Lord or the cessation of this physical life, the reality is we will be with the Lord. And that's a great thing <laughs> if our lives are right. <laughs> that's a cautious thing if you're found lacking. Uh, when we read, um, now since we know about our future, it ought to shape how we live in the present. As Jesus was to the end of his ministry and life, uh, he gave his final sermon or final discourse to his disciples. We can see this in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 to 25, verses 46. There are four parables he gives back to back. How a believer, a Christian, ought to live in the light of his coming. The first one is, you ought to live, because the coming would be in the middle, like a thief in the night, the Christian ought to be alert and watchful of the times. You cannot get drunk. Anyways. The second parable is about the servant whom the master assigned tasks and resources, and the master was taking some time, and this servant fell eye on the place. He started kicking things around, getting drunk, flirting, and harassing his fellow servants. No. God expects, in the light of his coming, that we live a life of integrity and righteousness. The third parable is about the virgins, the five who carried oil and the five who didn't. In the event of an emergency or a tragedy or an unexpected life-altering event, you need to have that spiritual reserves to make it through. And the last one was, the fourth parable was the one where the master gave five talents, two talent, and one talent. We are talking about believers. We are not talking about unbelievers here. And we know what happened with the last one, right? Till the last day, we ought to labor faithfully with what God has assigned us. It is, our, it is an imperative, and it's our responsibility and our duty. So in the light of what we know, we've got to shape how we live today. Our majority of our world live in the way like how the Epicureans live. Let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. A Christian ought not to live like that. <clears throat> and as, as, we, as we go to the fourth chapter, we saw the wonderful commendation that Paul gave about the church. But he tells them, I know you're living good. I know you're doing the will of God. I urge you to do more. I know you're pleasing the Lord, you take your faith, your love, you're caring for people. I know you're doing that, but I urge you to do more. That is what Paul speaks. That is what God would want us to do today and now. Next slide. Okay. Thessalonica is the English or the Latin rendition of the word. Thessaloniki is a Greek rendition of the word. Uh, it's a compound word made of Thessaly and Nike. Nike is the goddess of victory, the sneakers that we wear. <laughs> so the word Thessaloniki, 
meaning victory in Thessaly. It is, um, the history is that King, Ma uh, King Philip II of Macedon won a victory, a decisive victory, the very day her daughter was born. So he named his daughter Thessaloniki, and if you remember the first slide, whom Cassander married and named the city. <laughs> so that's how um, uh, the word we have, Thessaloniki. But our, our purpose here is, Paul is of the opinion the church in Thessaloniki was victorious. They were able to say no to the flesh, to the desires of greed and lust and anger and strife. They were victorious over the cultural forces that would have forced them to compromise and to conform to the way the, 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 the culture lived. They were victorious over the threats, the intimidation, and the persecution they faced for their faith. And Paul says, you have done well. Take it to heart. You will be victorious over death too. This is just a play of words. So the church of Thessaloniki was victorious. How is the church in America faring? We have a communion table here today, and Pastor Robin will be leading us into that. And I love this when, again, Jesus in Matthew 26, 29 says, next, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of this wine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom, a promise of having all of you together with him in his kingdom and have this thing. And every time we celebrate this, it is an assurance that we are going to make it. I didn't do this last slide. That's my father here. On the right, M.V. Philippos, as a pastor, I, I grew up. My father lived for many years away. I mean, he was working away. He was a good father. <laughs> uh, but I grew up. Uh, my local pastor, kind of like he was a mentor, he raised me up in the faith. He was the one who dedicated me when it came time. He was the one who baptized me when it came time. And he was the one who preached on my wedding when it, when it came time. He passed away in 2018. The next year, Reverend P.S. Philip, he's the superintendent. Yeah, even uh, Pastor M.V. Philippos is the superintendent of Assemblies of God Church in Mumbai. Uh, Reverend P.S. Philip, he was the Assemblies of God superintendent in Kerala, my, my native hometown. And he was the one who mentored me, who encouraged me to, uh, to come to ministry along with my work. He was, I think he was one of the first persons I know in India uh, who had a doctorate from Westminster Theological Seminary and one a person who encouraged me to take this journey uh, of, uh, of stepping into ministry. I wouldn't be here in this world had it not been for Mr. K.O. Philip, my father, who passed away last year. <clears throat> the one thing I know, all of these men of God, all of them were pastors. Uh, till the very end, they labored uh, for the kingdom of God we, incessantly. Till the, every bit of energy, every bit of everything they could give for the kingdom of God, they did. My dad was the way he was a pastor in Saudi Arabia for many years. 
Between them, I don't know. I was trying to get the accurate number of the number of young pastors they trained, marriages that go in thousands that have solemnized, baptisms that go in thousands that they have done, and hundreds and thousands that they have led to Christ. Yet, many times they would not have an extra pair of dress to change. But they finished their race well, and all of them would be 65, 70, 71. They went to be with the Lord. The last time I saw all the three together was on my marriage. My dad walked me to the aisle. Pastor M.V. Philippos preached on that day. He was, the, he was the official signatory because I was based in Mumbai. And Pastor P.S. Philip, he gave Joanne's hand into my hand and solemnized our marriage before the Lord. I was here in the U.S. and due to reasons, COVID and visa and other reasons, I could not be with them when they were having their final moments. So the last time I got to see all of them alive was during a marriage. And it is my great hope that there awaits a great marriage for the people of God, a great banquet where will be the marriage of the Lamb and where there will be a celebration of communion for all of us. This is our hope. We, we ought not to grieve like the pagans who do not have hope. Christ is our hope, and Christ is the one to whom we look. May the Lord bless you. Thank you.